And there's my musical cue. I'm Jerry Kenny. Welcome to Wiso Weekend, WISO's weekly radio magazine. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. Coming up on today's program, WISO's Lila Goldstein talks to one University of Dayton professor to learn what he has planned for a chunk of NASA funding that has come his way. And stories galore from the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices. That's the best of Dayton Youth Radio, Culture Couch, and Veterans Voices all coming your way today. Up first. Investigations into the death of 10-year-old Dakota Collins are continuing. Despite years of alleged abuse by his father, Al McLean, and complaints from school officials, McLean removed the boy from school in order to homeschool him. Now, some people are saying it's time for Ohio to change its homeschooling laws. They say Dakota's case is a wake-up call and changes in state law are necessary in order to protect students who are at risk of child abuse and who are removed from school. To discover more on the ins and outs of homeschooling and what protections are in place for children at risk, we're talking today with Milton Gaither, a professor at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Gaither has written extensively on homeschooling in America and is the author of the book Homeschool, an American History. It's a very interesting topic historically because what you had is in, in the 1970s, two different groups, people on the radical left and on the radical right, made the same move at almost exactly the same time. A decade before, nobody was doing homeschooling. A decade after, on both sides of the extremes, people are moving to homeschooling. So the case of Dakota Collins here in Dayton has on some level brought the subject of homeschooling into the spotlight. It appears that Dakota's father filed the paperwork to start homeschooling him, but that paperwork was only a couple of forms he had to mail in, and he never had to meet with school officials. People in the community are asking now if there aren't some changes in law that need to happen to protect children who may be being abused. Right. That's the sort of discussion that's being had all over the country. Here's the basic story. In the last 20 and 30 years, the regulations that were put into place for homeschooling when the various states, and mostly many states in the early 1980s, either um, explicitly made homeschooling legal or changed their laws to make it more clearly legal. And when they did so, they often put various regulations in. Those regulations have been steadily eroded over the decades by determined advocacy organizations, most prominently the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which would love to have no regulation of homeschooling at all. HSLDA is very motivated, very well-funded, and they do a great job lobbying for their agenda at state legislatures. So when an issue like what you're having to deal with here in Ohio comes up, people for a moment start to say, why is there so little regulation of homeschooling? But then they forget about the issue and they go back to their business. Homeschoolers do not forget about the issue. They are there year after year after year, and any time a legislature in any state in the country suggests increasing regulations on public schooling, that legislator is going to be attacked by homeschool advocates, uh, phone calls and emails constantly, and that legislation has very little chance of success. Hardly ever does it get success, and more, much more successful are efforts to roll back legislation. That's what we've seen over the last 20 years consistently is a rollback of regulations rather than an increase of them. And so is abuse of homeschooled kids a wider issue than we realize? You mentioned the public's tendency to let an issue go. Is there a concerted effort by people to get some changes in place? There is a concerted effort. It does happen. Whether it happens more frequently now than it has in the past, impossible to say. Um, homeschool advocates will be quick to point out that it, you know, abuse is not something exclusive to homeschooling. Plenty of children get abused who are not homeschooled, um, and of course they're correct about that. 
So the degree, uh, the direction, impossible to say. There are multiple cases like this that happen year after year after year. If you want a good example of that, there's a, a website that's maintained by a woman named Rachel Coleman and some other people named Homeschooling's Invisible Children. They keep a running tally of these kinds of anecdotes as they emerge. But remember, we are dealing here with anecdotes. We don't have statistical data on you know what percentage of homeschoolers are abused and how that is relative to people who don't go to homeschools or something like that. So I believe Ohio law only requires a simple application and notification to school officials. Can schools or should schools, regardless of the law, take more of a stand to deny those applications if abuse is suspected? Well, the schools have to obey the law. If the law does not give them the prerogative to do so, they cannot do that. If they try to do so, they will likely be sued and they will lose. Um, so if you want to do something in terms of increasing uh, surveillance of homeschooling families, you're going to have to do that at the government level. You can't do it in the local school, given the fact that all the states now do have school laws about homeschooling. That is, in fact, what several teachers within the school system here have done. What haven't we talked about here that people should know? I think the thing to point out is that uh, if you want to make some sort of change along these lines at the legislative level, you're going to have a kind of, some kind of grassroots organization. It's going to have to be funded. It's going to have to be consistent. Uh, I think a good analogy is, is the debate we've had in the country over gun rights. You know, the, the NRA is a you know, well-funded and motivated constituency. People who want to regulate firearms tend to do so right in the wake of, a, of a, some kind of crisis that we've just had, and then they forget about the issue. I, I see a parallel here. So uh, something like what the teachers, you say, are doing, if that becomes more of a movement that's willing to last for multiple years, maybe something could get done. But short of that, there's not going to be a change in Ohio. Milton Gaither is a professor at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Milton, thanks so much for your time and the information today. Thank you. And we've got more on that story in the coming weeks ahead. Stay with us. Dam removals along the Cuyahoga River in northeastern Ohio have gotten attention for years. Now an effort to remove dams along the nearby Mahoning River will improve safety and fish habitat, but not everyone is ready for it. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant reports. Growing up in the small riverfront village of Lowellville, Ohio, by the Pennsylvania border, Jim Idesiani stayed away from the Mahoning River. When I was a kid, if I went near that river, we'd get smacked because it was so dirty and dangerous. Now, as mayor of Lowellville, he's been pushing for years to get rid of the old steel industry dam that crosses the river here. And he says it's coming down this summer. They call me the dam mayor, and for good reason, finally. Just steps from the village downtown, Idesiani stands by the river, looking at the concrete dam. It'll be the first in a regional plan to remove nine dams along the Mahoning. Right now, people who canoe and kayak need to pull their boats out of the water and carry them around the dam. Where you see all the whiteness underneath, that's just the hydraulics, which makes it very dangerous. Ohio regulators describe low-head dams as drowning machines because boats can get trapped in the recirculating current below them. Once the Lowellville Dam is removed, Idesiani wants his riverfront village to become a hotspot for outdoor recreation. He points out where a new park with space for canoes is planned, and he talks about kayak rentals, a restaurant, and new living space. This whole thing is going to be a catalyst for us for development. 
It's a far cry from the region's steelmaking days, but even after most steel mills closed, the Ohio EPA still found the effects of pollution in the river. They found fish with lesions and tumors on them. That's Stephanie Dyer, environmental program manager for the Eastgate Regional Council of Governments, the agency leading the Mahoning Dam removal project. She says communities here have wanted to clean the river. In the early 2000s, an Ohio grant program assisted with dam removals on the nearby Cuyahoga River. That's when it started to click here at Eastgate as well as within the region that we can do this on our own as a local community and as a region. Eastgate says it secured more than $10 million of the $27 million needed to remove all nine dams. But some communities don't want their dams taken down. You know what? We just want to be left alone. Edward Anthony is a trustee in Warren Township, a rural area 20 miles upriver from Lowellville and home of the Levittsburg Dam. Local fire officials here say the dam provides a secondary water supply for emergencies, and health officials worry that without the dam, water levels will be too low to dilute sewage from home septic systems. It's a grave concern because I think if they proceed with this, we're going to be left with a mess. Russell St. Clair and his neighbors who live along the river behind the Levittsburg Dam float on pontoon boats and fish for muskie and perch. The river now is better than it's ever been. They worry they'll lose their best fishing spots if the dam is removed. But an Ohio EPA study found that fish communities behind the Levittsburg Dam and others were impaired. Ben Lorson is a biologist with the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. He says removing dams is better for fish. There's kind of this misconception that, you know, you're you're taking a good fishing spot away, when in reality those fish want to go upstream. They're just not able to because the dam's in their way. Elsewhere in the Ohio River watershed, removing dams is bringing back people, too, Federal fish biologist Donovan Henry says people who canoe and kayak stop along the way to eat and shop. The community and the river start tying together and it, and it does promote economic vitality. Standing by the Mahoning, Lowellville Mayor Jim Idiciani wants that future for his village. But looking at the water roll over the dam today, he still sees beauty in it. I'm getting this surreal feeling, a sad feeling too, that now it's coming out we're never going to see this again either. But it needs done, you know. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant. That story is part of Good River, stories about the environment, economy, and culture of the Ohio River. There's more at ohiowatershed.org. Well, NASA and the Indian Space Research Organization are working on a new satellite that will use advanced radar technology to investigate global environmental change. In preparation for that launch, NASA has been offering research grants to scientists interested in this new data. University of Dayton professor Umesh Haritasha won $100,000 in funding to try to detect what is happening below the surface of glaciers. WISO's Lila Goldstein spoke with him about the project. Hi, Professor Haritasha. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for calling. So could you explain to me what your project is about and what it's intended to do? Specifically in my project, we proposed that we can use these satellite or these spacecraft data sets, radar data, to actually look at the glaciers and see how they are melting, how the sediments on the glaciers are affecting the melting patterns. And as they fly over these areas, they sense the signal down and they collect the signal back as they are responding back from the Earth's surface. 
And how does this technology help you understand more about how glaciers are moving and melting and to see below the surface of the glacier? So in general, optical satellite that, that we see in a day-to-day basis on a Google Earth or anywhere else, they can see what our eyes can see. So if, if our eyes can see cloud, satellites can see cloud as well. Or if our, our eyes can see tree, satellites can see tree as well. But radar is different. It sends the signal. It doesn't rely on the sun and collects the information back. So in that sense, we are hoping that these, both of these sensors will be able to penetrate through top layer of the sediment, which is on the ice. And uh, we do not know how much it can go at this point in time because this is a test run. But we are hoping that it will be able to provide some information below the top layer of the sediment or top layer of the ice or top layer of the snow and help us understand better what's going on a few centimeters or a few millimeters below the surface. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking more broadly, why is it important that you have a better understanding of that data? Like, what are the broader implications? So the the bottom line here is that, uh, and I'll take an example from my my research, which is the glaciers, that... um, there are aspects of the glaciers which we still not able to properly understand. In other words, um, this satellite or this spacecraft data, radar data, will help us understand those things. And in, in broader context, it will help us understand how climate change is impacting the glaciers and in, in return also able to understand, hopefully, how glaciers, uh, how glacier impact or glacier changes is impacting the water resources and the sea level rise. Well, thanks so much, Professor Haritashia, for talking with me today. No, thank you for calling. I appreciate that. WISO's Lila Goldstein speaking with the University of Dayton's Umesh Haritashia. I'm Jerry Kenny. You're listening to WISO Weekend on 91.3 WISO. Thanks so much for joining us. Ohio sculptor James Mellick carves life-size dogs from wood. He uses walnut for chocolate labs, basewood for yellow labs, and cedar for red Dobermans. He'll work a single sculpture for over a month, crafting it to perfection. He makes dogs that are playful, dogs that serve as allegories, dogs that were injured in combat. His exhibit of service dogs at the United States Air Force Museum is closing this week. Community Voices producer Jason Reynolds spoke with Mellick about his work. I am a dog and I like to roll in dead things on the road. <laughs> Nearly got hit by a car last night, but if the truth be told, roll kill this wonderful stuff. Sculptor James Mellick is in the auditorium of the Air Force Museum, singing a song about how dogs love to roll around and roadkill. And my master will hose me off. <laughs> I'm keeping my day job. The auditorium is packed. Over 500 people are in the room to hear Melek talk about his sculptures of service dogs. Sky Sampson came all the way from Toledo. I drove over two hours to be here. Sampson suffers from crippling migraines that can affect her vision and require help. She says the show spoke to her. It definitely had a connection because I have an assistance dog. And it was really nice to see the representation of a lot of the working dogs that they're being held to higher standards. Samson is just one of dozens of people visibly moved by the sculptures, perhaps because of Melek's high standards for his own work. Melek doesn't carve the animals out of one big block of wood. Instead, he makes the torso, the legs, the head, even the teeth and tongue separately. Then he assembles them. 
A lot of the work is carving and sanding. I attack that sucker however I can and get as much done as I can, as quickly as I can, with a heavy profile grinder, angle grinders, heavy sandpaper. I use pneumatic carvers, die grinders, things like that. He then bleaches and burns the wood to make the parts look like they have fur. Well, there's a you know a two-part bleach that I would put on to lighten the wood. It gives like a highlights if you were frosting your hair. So in, in effect, I'm frosting the dog hair. For the darker areas, I use the, the torch and then buff out the torch so it gives a nice, dark, ebonized feeling to it. And then the, uh, the middle tone is the natural wood itself. Melick says it takes about 160 hours to make one sculpture. The teeth and tongue alone take two to three days. But when a sculpture is done, it's moving. Matt Tracy came to the exhibit because he trains service dogs that will go on to work with disabled children and veterans. He's also a craftsman who builds benches, shelves, and cabinets, and who admires Melick's work. The life he captures, the, the way he uses the woods... It is phenomenal to me to see this level of artwork bringing these dogs to life. I wish I could be that good. And how does Melek get so much emotion into his dogs? He says he tries to walk a mile in their paws. You put yourself in the dog's skin. You empathize with them. Yeah, I've had plenty of dogs. I know they have a certain gesture when they're bad, when they're guilty, when they've done something wrong, when they're happy, when they're joyous. You know, you're trying to capture that gesture because, you know, man's best friend, you know, they got the goods on us. And so I'm making them tell stories about the human condition. Melick says he gets his passion for woodwork from his mother. My mother made a lot of her own furniture, cabinets and shelves and, you know, flip-top table that would fold up and things like that. Yeah. When you can't afford nice things, you figure out how to make them yourself. So she was kind of the, the maker, the woodworker in the family. The exhibit of Wounded Warrior Dogs on display at the Air Force Museum won the People's Choice Award at Art Prize 8 in Michigan. But it wasn't without its detractors. Melick says some critics felt he only won by pulling on heartstrings and playing with patriotism in his tribute to combat dogs. None of the jurors liked my work uh, because they thought the dogs were too much about America. But in the end, Melick says he's happy his work appeals to the people, if not the critics. One of the last people at the exhibit today is Jason Williams. He wanted to bring his two young sons to see the show, but he waited until the crowd died down. He's been injured, so he's using a motorized scooter to get around the exhibit. I absolutely love it, and you know, being a combat vet myself, so it uh, it means a lot. Coming back, you know, I've got four breaks in my back, so uh, think about some of the guys that we don't have back. They didn't come back, so it means a lot. William's son, Jason Jr., is drawn to a sculpture of a dog that has challenges similar to his father's. Which is your favorite dog? Um, the one with those two wheels. The, the one in a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. Why do you like him best? Because he can walk still. James Mellick's exhibit at the Air Force Museum closes this Friday. It's the last chance to see these sculptures in Ohio for a while. They'll be on the road at other museums and galleries through 2021. For Culture Couch at WYSO, I'm Jason Reynolds. Culture Couch is made possible by a generous grant from the Ohio Arts Council. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks for joining us on WISO Weekend. Army veteran Mason Rick of Cincinnati wears a memorial bracelet in honor of his friend and fallen soldier, Army veteran Mike Runyon. Today on Veterans Voices, Mason talks with his co-worker, Henry Sass, and remembers his comrade, Mike. So one of the things I've noticed is that you wear a bracelet on your wrist. Right, so... It's, it's aluminum and black in color. Um, the style became popular during like, the Vietnam War. 
Um, so a lot of times they're referred to as POW or MIA bracelets, and more now they um, they kind of signify a person who's been killed in action as opposed to someone who's either a prisoner of war or missing in action. Um, and so Mike Runyon was a classmate of mine at Xavier. He graduated the year before me in 2008, um, and I tried to stay really close to Mike and and just – not even so much of uh, I want to hang out with you. I want to, but I want to observe you, and I want to try to model myself after you because I think you're doing everything right, and I want to be like that. He was funny. He was smart. He was tall. He was handsome. He was he was fast. He was strong. He and he would do all those things, and he would turn around and. He would beat you in video games and he would beat you in Risk and he would beat you in Monopoly. And, I mean, <laughs> he could do it all. And it was pretty incredible how just like open and willing he was to be that guy for everybody. Um, so sometime late June, early July, we have lunch together right before he deploys. And you can tell he's – He's been training for this for so long, and he's and he's just ready to go do his job and take care of business. And he's so just on it. He sounds like he wants to do it the best he can, like he did everything else. Right? Exactly. Yes. And so, a couple three weeks go by, and I get an email that says Mike had been killed in action. Um, and then come to find out, his his vehicle had got got hit by an IED. Um, so then when I heard that, I go through all these like scenarios in my head and you, and you try, I tried to reconstruct what happened. So was it the day? Was it nighttime? Was it bad weather? Was it, was his, the first vehicle? Was it the third vehicle? Was it the last one? Was, you know, where was he sitting? Was he sitting in the front? Was he sitting in the back? Did something, you know, you go through all these like scenarios and not to, not to assign blame or fault, but to just understand like what happened and like, how did it happen to him? And like, what are the odds? And so I'm trying to piece all this together. And, and then I remember driving home and it wasn't anywhere on my radar whenever I was driving home. I don't know why I totally just kind of like blocked out of my mind. But I got home and I just said it. I said, Mike Runyon died and I just lost it. And I couldn't like come back from that. And yeah, I just had a really hard time. And uh, it's kind of been there ever since. If it's any consolation at all, I see Mike Runyon in you. Thanks. Thank you. That was Army veteran Mason Rick and Henry Sauce. This conversation took place at WYSO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WYSO is presented by Wright-Pat Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. The story was edited by Will Davis.
Many parents want their teenagers to be financially responsible, and when Darnell Terry was a student at Ponitz Career Technology Center, he said he had it all figured out. This story was originally aired in 2016, and we're rebroadcasting it today as part of the best of Dayton Youth Radio. I'm about budgeting my money so I can have a better life than most people I know. I go to school and have two jobs, and I help out at my dad's car wash. I make a nice piece of change, and I guess you can say I'm saving it for a rainy day. I pay my own phone bill and car insurance. I was raised to budget my money from a young age by my dad. My freshman year of high school, my dad took me to a credit union, and we opened up a bank account for me. I started out with just 100 bucks. Me and my brothers, the four Ds, my dad's name is Daryl. I have another brother named Daryl, Darrell, and then it's me, Darnell. We are all tight with our money. Now let me tell you, there are a lot of things that my generation blows money on, such as designer clothes like Rock Revival jeans, True Religion jeans, Affliction shirts. Anything that can get you a lot of likes on Instagram or Facebook is what a lot of people are now blowing their money on. Take my boy Jabri, for example. He spends his money mostly on food, like fast food. Every time we hang out, he always wants to get something to eat. If I go to a gas station right now, he will get out the car with me and go get a super donut. Now, with you spending money on not just super donuts, what else food do you like that you spend money on? I spend money on Subway, pizza. I buy a lot of snacks, you know, Applebee's. Roosters, I done spent a lot of money on them places. And then there's my other best friend, Gino. He's on the basketball team with me, and Gino likes to spend his money on the shorties. <laughs> well, I mean his girlfriend. Man, I try to get her everything she asked for, man. She just so pricey. You know how girls are these days. They want everything in Victoria's Secret. Man, I try to get her everything, though. That's my baby, man. How you be getting your money, man? Man, I just get it however, man. What I do is work over the summer, stack up, save it. I do the clock sometimes at the basketball games. I might ask my dad for a couple dollars here or there. I really don't ask my mom and dad for much, though. I really don't know how Gino gets his money or where he gets it from, but he doesn't borrow any from me. I got rules about if you borrow money from me because I don't get my money out a lot. But if I do... I only can loan you $10. Then there's this one girl named Jalen, the first girl I went on a date with. When we went on our date, I had enough money for my meal, plus a tip and her meal. Thank you, you too. But I really wasn't worried about if she went over the budget. I had a debit card for backup. So for me personally, I have three main dating rules for teenagers called the Darnell system. Rule number one, always budget out your money. I took out $20 from my budget and went out to a chicken joint in Dayton just to kick it. Rule number two, never, I mean never, let the date pick up the check. And three, the main thing is to be honest, because if your girlfriend is willing to still date you when you're broke, she's real. She's there for you. She's committed. And yes, my girl's committed, even though I haven't went broke yet. We've been going out dating for two to three months since then, and I've been paying for everything so far. But that's my job, to pay for everything. Want to know why? Because I'm the man.
and I do not like the waitress asking for two checks. For Dane Youth Radio, I'm Darnell Terry. That was a story from Darnell Terry, a senior at Ponent CTC High School, where he plays for the basketball team and is planning to go to college this year. To hear more stories from Dayton Youth Radio, visit our website at wyso.org. Special thanks to Ponent's radio instructor, Joanne Viscup. I'm Project Coordinator, Basim Blunt. That story originally aired in 2016. Darnell Terry is now majoring in media studies at Wright State University and works as a music and event promoter. That's it for this edition of Why So Weekend on 91.3 WYSO. Building a more informed community with independent news and storytelling. I'm Jerry Kenny. Come back and join us next week at 10. Now on WYSO, it's Vic McCunis with The Book Nook. Nikki Dakota here asking, how well do you know your WISO DJs? I'm Dante Bedingfield. 3J the DJ. I'm Juliet Frumholt. I'm Todd Widener. This is Rev Cool. Radio Basin. This is Devin. You'll hear all your bluegrass favorites. I'm Jennifer Berman. This is Cindy Funk. I'm Eric Henry. I'm Evan Miller, inviting you to the outside. Dive in to WISO's wide world of music. Find these local hosts and their hand-picked playlists at WISO.org. Weekday mornings can be unpredictable. But no matter how your morning is going, you can still catch up on the news. Because Morning Edition from NPR News is now available on your schedule. Weekdays, 7 till 3. Every story, all the news. Just say, Alexa, play Morning Edition. That's Morning Edition on WYSO.